We turn in God's word this evening to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we read through verse 28. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Or, if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are, of all men, most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, 
even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Thus far we read God's holy word. Our text is verse 10. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Beloved, in the immediate context, the apostle is listing the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was seen of Cephas, or Peter, and of the twelve. He gives a list of the people to whom Jesus appeared, and then in verse 8 he says, And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. Paul then was privileged to be one of those who saw the risen Lord Jesus. And yet, he does not boast of this. Instead, as is common, when Paul describes his apostleship, he expresses his unworthiness. I am the least of the apostles, he says. I am not meet, or I am not worthy to be called an apostle, he says. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. And so as Paul writes this, his wicked past still haunts him. It makes him ashamed. He had been a persecutor of God's church. That is what he had been. That is what he was. But what is he now? God has changed him. And our text begins then with the word but. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I was something. I am now something different. And the reason behind that change is this. But 
by the grace of God, I am what I am. Notice then, what I am by God's grace. What I am by God's grace. First, a debtor to grace. Second, activated by grace. And third, ascribing all to grace. In verse 10, beloved, Paul writes of himself in the present tense. I am. Not I was. He described what he was in the context, a persecutor of the church. Not I will be my Future doesn't mention that here. He describes himself in the present tense. I am. Paul was something. Now Paul is something else. And the contrast could not be greater. Paul was an unbeliever. Now he is a believer confessing Jesus Christ. Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Pharisee. Now he is a Christian. He is a preacher. He is an apostle. Paul was an enemy of the church. He persecuted the church. Now Paul is a member of the church, a lover of the church, a supporter and a defender of the church. The question is, how did that change occur? How did Paul change from being an unbeliever, a Jew, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, to a believer, a Christian, a preacher, an apostle? How has Paul's very identity changed? How has he come to be what he now is? To that question, various answers have been given by religious people. Some will say, Paul worked. Paul worked hard. Paul labored. Paul kept God's commandments. Paul obeyed God's law. Paul was active in good works, and by his efforts and his good works, he is what he now is. But then Paul would have written, by works, I am what I am. I am a self-made man. I am the product of my own hard work, my own success. Others will say, Paul chose to become what he now is. God, as it were, placed before him the option to become a believer, to become a Christian, to become an apostle, or to remain what he was. And then Paul chose that new identity. And by implication, we can do the same thing. We can choose to become Christians or not as it pleases us. But then Paul would have written, by free will, I am what I am. I am the product of my own good and wise choices. 
But that's not Paul's answer. Paul does not attribute his new identity to his works, by works I am what I am, or to his will, by my free will I am what I am. Paul attributes his new identity to God's grace. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And there's the great contrast, beloved, There's the difference between what we were and what we are. There's the difference between the unbeliever and the believer, the lost person and the saved person. Paul the persecutor and Paul the apostle. The difference is God's grace. Only God's grace. Grace is one of the most significant words in the Bible. And the Protestant Reformed churches in particular have made the preaching of grace our chief task. That's what we are known for. That's what we ought to be known for. The teaching, the preaching, the proclamation of God's grace. In 1924, the PRC formed because of a controversy concerning the particularity of grace. We confess that grace is particular, not common, not given to all, and therefore not ineffectual, not a non-saving grace. In 1953, the churches went through a painful schism over the question of the unconditionality of the gracious covenant of God. And the question at that time was, is God's grace for all the physical children of believers, for all those who are in the visible church, and does man then have to do something as a condition on which his salvation depends? And we answered that question with a no. Grace is particular. Grace is effectual. And there are no conditions in the covenant of grace. And we still answer that question with no. We still say with what Paul says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. What then is grace? Well, first of all, grace, being the grace of God, is an attribute or a perfection of God's being. And if you ask the question, who or what is God, you could answer that question in different ways. You could say God is almighty, or God is holy, or you could say God is gracious, God 
is grace. God is gracious in himself. That word grace means beauty. God is beautiful. God is majestic. God is delightful. God is wonderful. We speak of God as the gracious God. Psalm 96 verse 9 says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And Psalm 27 verse 4, the psalmist expresses his desire to, quote, Behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The beauty of the Lord is his graciousness. And so the Father is gracious to the Son in the Holy Spirit, and the Son is gracious to the Father in the Holy Spirit. They have a beautiful relationship of friendship and communion with one another. And so God, beloved, does not need the creature in order to be the God of grace. God is gracious and beautiful in himself. And if God had chosen to save no creature, he would still be beautiful and gracious in himself because he is the God of grace. He desires to reveal that grace to the creature, and he does, but in himself, he is gracious. By the grace of God, I am what I am. So says Paul, I am what I am because God is the God of grace. If God were not gracious, or if God were not gracious to me personally, Paul says, I would be something very different. Second, grace being the grace of God is a beautiful attitude or disposition in God to show favor to his people. When you think of the word grace, beloved, think of favor. God shows favor to his people. And because we are undeserving, because we are sinners, when God's grace is shown to us, it always comes to us as unmerited, undeserved favor. But the meaning of grace itself is simply God's favor, a beautiful attitude or disposition of God toward his people. Luke 2.40, Luke 2.40, we read this about Jesus Christ, and the child grew, and the grace of God was upon him. Jesus, the Son of God in our flesh, was and is the object of God's grace. Not God's unmerited favor, you understand, but simply this, God had a favorable disposition 
or attitude toward Jesus Christ, according to which he delighted in him. And when God is gracious to us, he delights in us. He shows mercy and love toward us. His goodwill, his favor is upon us. And God's grace then comes to us in Jesus Christ. It flows to us from the decree of election. God chose to be gracious to us in his decree of election before the foundation of the world. And then that grace is displayed to us in the cross of Jesus Christ, where God, in his favor toward us, sent Christ, and Christ, in his favor toward us, laid down his life for us to make satisfaction for all of our sins. And then God's grace comes to us in the Holy Spirit, who in his favor towards us breathes new life into us, regenerates us, makes us partakers of all of the blessings that Christ has purchased for us, so that as a consequence of our receiving that grace, we begin to live before God's face as his regenerated children. I am what I am, says Paul, because God has shown favor to me, favor which I do not deserve or merit, favor that I have indeed forfeited by my sin, favor that comes to me in election from the cross and by the Holy Spirit. So God is gracious. He is a beautiful God. God has this beautiful attitude or disposition of favor toward us. And third, grace being the grace of God is a power that works in God's people, that works in us to beautify us so that we are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God is beautiful. He's gracious. Christ, the image of God, is beautiful. He's gracious. God has this disposition of favor toward us. And then by the power of his grace, he makes us beautiful. Spiritually beautiful with the beauty of Holiness. We often don't think about that aspect of grace, but that aspect of grace is prominent in the text. There was a power working in the Apostle Paul to make him what he was, and that power is God's grace. And that power works in the child of God, the elect, redeemed, regenerate child of God, that power works in him so that he does things which he otherwise would find impossible to do. By the grace of God, we see our sin. By the grace of God, we sorrow over and repent of our sin. 
By the grace of God, we hunger and thirst after righteousness. By the grace of God, we offer to God a broken heart and a contrite spirit. By the grace of God, we believe in Jesus Christ. We hold for truth everything that God reveals in his word, even when the world opposes us. By the grace of God, we walk in newness of life, in obedience to God's commandments. Consider Titus 2, 11 and 12. Titus 2, 11 and 12. Paul there writes about the grace of God. The grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. God's grace teaches us. And when God's grace teaches us, he then causes us to deny or to give up sin, ungodliness. And when God's grace teaches us, he teaches us to live in godliness. That's a wonderful power of God, God's grace. Or consider also 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And here Paul interprets God's grace to be the power of Christ. He goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 12, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ which is God's grace, may rest upon me. I am what I am, says the apostle, because the power of God in Jesus Christ has worked in me so that I have turned from my Christ-blaspheming, church-persecuting ways and have become a believing Christian and apostle in the church. The apostle's confession is not unique to him. Paul does not mean to say to the Corinthians, by the grace of God, I am what I am, but you Corinthians are not debtors to God's grace. Only I am. Rather, his confession is the confession of every child of God, every believer in Jesus Christ, and is the example to us. Who or what are you? If you say, I am a believer... You are that by the grace of God. If you say, I am the elect believing child of godly parents, you are that by the grace of God. 
If you say, I am a confessing member of the church, you are that by the grace of God. If you say, I am a baptized member of the church and I desire to confess my faith one day, you are that by the grace of God and you will confess your faith by the grace of God. If you say, I am a believing office bearer in the church, you are that by the grace of God. If you say, I am a believing husband or a believing father or a believing wife or a believing mother, you are that by the grace of God and you fulfill that calling by the grace of God. If you say, I have a disability, I have a severe illness, I have a trial, I am even facing death, the grace of God will be sufficient for you. By the grace of God, by that beautiful favor of the beautiful God, by the beautifying power of God, I am what I am. That by grace, beloved, is our confession. As individuals, as a congregation of Jesus Christ, as a denomination, we say, by the grace of God, I am, we are, I am what I am, we are what we are. This grace, this beautiful favor, this beautifying favor, makes the believer active. That's what verse 10 says. And Paul expresses this truth that the grace of God makes the believer active both positively and negatively. Negatively, Paul writes, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. It was not in vain. And he goes on to say what he means by not in vain when he adds, but I labored. In other words, if the result of the operation of God's grace had not been that Paul labored, then you could conclude that God's grace was bestowed upon him in vain. And those words in vain simply mean empty. God's grace, says the apostle, was not bestowed upon me as something empty. And something empty means it accomplishes nothing. If you are hungry and I give you an empty bowl, I accomplish nothing. You're still hungry. You don't have food. I've given you an empty bowl, but God does not give empty grace. God's grace was given to the apostle 
And God's grace is given to us with a purpose. And that purpose will be fulfilled because God's purposes are always fulfilled. God's purpose was to favor Paul, to redeem him, to forgive him, to justify him, to sanctify and transform him, and ultimately to glorify him with the beauty of Jesus Christ in everlasting life. God's purpose in bestowing grace upon this Saul of Tarsus was to turn him from sinful unbelief and persecuting zeal to faithful apostolic service in the church of Jesus Christ. If God's grace then, beloved, had come to Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road, and had not made him Paul the Apostle, then to speak as a fool, God's grace would have been bestowed upon him in vain. If God's grace had left him in his sins, then to speak as a fool, God's grace would have been in vain. But it's impossible that God's grace could be bestowed in vain because it is God's grace. And the same thing applies to us. If God's grace is bestowed upon us and we do not believe or repent, and if we remain totally depraved and never do any good works, and bring forth no good fruit, then we'd have to say again, speaking as fools, God's grace was bestowed upon us in vain. And if we did not deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and if we did not live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, Then we'd have to conclude, again, speaking as fools, God's grace was bestowed upon us in vain. God's grace was not able to teach us. And if we were not able ever to endure any affliction in life, but lived always in bitterness and anger, impatience and despair all the days of our life, And again, to speak as a fool, we'd have to conclude that God's grace was not sufficient for us. And yet we are told that God's grace is sufficient for believers. And so God's grace is not bestowed upon us, beloved, in vain. And his grace, says the apostle, which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. It was not empty Grace. Positively, Paul writes, but I labored more abundantly than they all. The opposite of vanity, the opposite of emptiness, is abundant labor, work, the operation, the fruit of the operation of God's grace. 
Paul says, God's grace was bestowed upon me and I labored. I worked. I worked hard. In fact, Paul says, I labored more abundantly than they all. He's making a comparison here between himself and the other apostles. They were apostles before him. He comes after them and he says about his labors, I, who had wasted my life in sin, in persecuting the church of Christ, I now labored more abundantly than Peter and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and the others. And you see this in the book of Acts, for example, Paul laboring more abundantly than them all, preaching the gospel, journeying from city to city, not sparing himself, enduring persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. I labored more abundantly than them all. Why? Because God's grace was bestowed upon me. And that grace was not bestowed upon me in vain. And so by the power of the Spirit, I labored. And I labored more abundantly than they all. And we know something of this too. Why does a pastor labor in his study over the scriptures? Because the grace of God is with him. Why do elders and deacons labor with and in the congregation, taking the oversight of the congregation, bringing them the mercies of Jesus Christ, because the grace of God is with them. Why do husbands and fathers labor to support their household? And why do wives and mothers labor in the home and in the school? Because the grace of God is with them. Why do young people and children labor in the home and in the school in obedience to their parents and in love for their siblings? Because the grace of God is with them. Why do we labor patiently under burdens and trials? Because the grace of God is with us. And the grace of God is not bestowed upon us in vain. Now some are nervous when they hear that the grace of God makes them active. And some do not want to hear about Paul laboring even by the grace of God, and some do not want to hear about their calling to labor by the grace of God, and with a zeal, they say, to protect the glory of God, they teach and insist upon the passivity of man. Passivity is the opposite of activity. Passivity means that you are acted upon 
but that you yourself do not do anything. Paul does not write, though, I did nothing. Paul writes, I labored. We may not change it. Paul wrote, I labored more abundantly than they all. And abundantly has the idea of overflowing, excessive, going beyond the normal limits. Paul did not labor a little bit. Paul labored a lot. He overflowed in work, in service, and in love. And it might seem to some to glorify God to say, I do not do good works. The Spirit does good works while I am passive. And it might seem to magnify God's grace to say, I am still totally depraved even after regeneration and I cannot do any good works. It might seem to be glorifying to God to say, I do nothing. God simply works in and through me while I am passive. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not the teaching of this text. And that is dishonoring to God because then you're saying that God's grace was bestowed upon us in vain. If God's grace is bestowed upon us in such a way that we're still totally depraved and not changed in any sense, then God's grace has been bestowed upon us in vain, and we speak as fools. To understand this, we ought to turn to the Canons of Dort, one of our creeds, especially Heads 3-4. I advise you, beloved, to make yourselves familiar with the creeds. And not to say, well, I learned that in catechism some years ago, I learned the Belgian Confession and the Canons of Dort, but to read and to reread the creeds, which are faithful summaries of the Word of God. And there's a word that the canons use, which we might not be familiar with. It's a word, actuate, A-C-T-U-A-T-E. E, actuate. And the canons use that word actuate because we are not stocks and blocks. We're not blocks of wood. Unfeeling, unconscious, inert blocks of wood or stone. When God works in us by his grace, beloved, he works in us in harmony with our nature as rational, moral creatures. And to explain this, the canons use the word actuate. And that word actuate means to act upon an object so that 
it then becomes active. It is to move an object to action. And the canons use this word actuate to describe the work of God's grace upon the will of man. We believe, of course, that man's will is in bondage to sin. But then God regenerates us. God converts us. And when he does that, he frees our will from that bondage to sin. Here's Canons 3, 4, 11. Canons 3, 4, 11, towards the end of that article, says this. God infuses new qualities into the will. He renders it, the will, good, obedient, and pliable. Actuates, there's that word, actuates and strengthens it, that like a good tree, it may bring forth the fruit of good actions. There the canons are speaking about our will after regeneration. The believer's will. Not the unbeliever's will, but the believer's will. And the believer's will is good. Good, that's the word the canons use. Our will after regeneration is good. God makes it good so that it can bring forth good actions as good fruit, as the Spirit works upon that will, as the Spirit actuates that will. The next article, Canons 3, 4, 12, again towards the end of that article says, whereupon the will thus renewed is not only actuated and influenced by God, but in consequence of this influence becomes itself active. Your will is renewed, actuated, or moved to action and influenced by God so that your will after regeneration is active. That's why as a believer who has been regenerated, you can believe, and you do believe, and you can repent, and you do repent, and you can do good works, and you do do good works. And one more, Canons 3, 4, 16. God spiritually quickens, heals, corrects, and at the same time sweetly and powerfully bends it, that is again, the will. And the consequence is a ready and sincere spiritual obedience begins to reign in which the true and spiritual restoration and freedom of our will consist. There's the bondage of the will. Luther spoke of that. The unbeliever's will is in bondage to sin. But here we have the believer's will, the regenerated 
will, it's free. True and spiritual restoration and freedom of our will. There's this spiritual obedience which begins to reign in our will so that we will now, we desire now to obey God. What happens to us in regeneration and conversion? By the grace of God, I am what I am. God's grace has operated upon me. God's grace has actuated me. God's grace has freed me from the bondage of sin to which I was enslaved. God's grace has so worked in me and still works in me so that I become active, or to use Paul's words, so that I labor. By the grace of God, I am what I am. God's grace has made my will good and obedient and pliable. By God's grace, I believe, I repent, I do good works. Not in my own strength, but by the power of God's grace. At the end of verse 10, Paul seems to backtrack He has made some comments about his own labors. I labored more abundantly than they all. And now he seems to change course because he then says, Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And Paul does not mean here, I misspoke, or my my pen slipped. I do not actually labor after all. But both things are true. I labored, yet not I. To understand that, it is good for us to look briefly at various theological systems and how they explain the relationship between God's work and our activity, or God's work of grace and our activity. The Pelagian says, Pelagius was a heretic who died in about 420 AD. His chief opponent was Augustine. The Pelagian says, I work and God's grace is not necessary. God's grace is useful God's grace is helpful, but God's grace is not necessary. That was the heretic Pelagius. Then the semi-Pelagian says, he has a more nuanced view, he says, God gives his grace, but I must cooperate with it. And so salvation then is a cooperative effort between God's grace and man's free will. And semi-Pelagianism is basically the view of Roman Catholicism. You cooperate with God's grace in order to have salvation. 
The Arminian says, and even more subtle now, the Arminian says, God's grace comes to me, and God's grace even works in me to convert me, but I can resist it. Arminian teaching is resistible grace. He makes it possible, says the Arminian, but I have to, by my free will, make it actual. The hyper-Calvinist says, God works in us and through us by his grace, and we do nothing. God does it in us. We do not, in any sense, do it. We reject Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism, and hyper-Calvinism. The Reformed position is, and has always been, God works in us so that we work. And our works, our activity, which we do indeed perform, that is the fruit of God's grace in us us. And that's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's activity. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the reason. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Why then does Paul write, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me? He does that to give all the glory to God. He's just said, I labored more abundantly. And then he qualifies it, lest anyone should accuse him of boasting, as if he were saying, I act independently of God's grace. God's grace was with me, he says. I work only by the power of God's grace. Without God's grace, I could do nothing. I could not labor. I could do nothing without God's grace. And that, too, is a temptation, of course. We sometimes think to ourselves, I can operate today independently of God's grace. I can live the Christian life today without God's grace. And the Apostle Peter tried that. He thought to himself, I can stand in my own strength. I can resist temptation without God's grace. And then he fell miserably into sin. He despised God's grace, saying he didn't need God's grace. We must always say, the grace of God is with me. So Paul writes here, in order to magnify the grace of God, which has changed him. 
By the grace of God, I am what I am. God has changed me so that I labor abundantly as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That grace bestowed upon me was not in vain, was not empty. The fruit of that grace was I labored more abundantly than they all. And yet, I must not, I do not, I dare not boast. God's grace was with me. I did nothing independently of God's grace. By God's grace, I did it. Without God's grace, I could do nothing. All the praise is to the God of all grace. So we conclude, beloved, what are you? What are you, beloved? Believer in Jesus Christ. You are what you are by the grace of God. You do what you do by the grace of God. And you give all the glory to the grace of God. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we confess that thou art the God of all grace. Thou art a beautiful God the God of perfection, that thou hast a beautiful attitude or disposition of favor toward us, that thou dost work in us powerfully by that grace to transform us so that we are now new creatures in Christ Jesus. Grant us thy grace each day that thy grace might be with us and that by thy grace we might labor abundantly in the home, in the church, in the school, in our workplace, all to the glory of thy great name. For Christ's sake, amen.